0: hello i'm jennifer thompson
1: and i'm chad thompson
0: and we are your hosts of the The Premise. premise where we get to the story behind the storyteller and this season four that's right we're in season four we've got some amazing storytellers lined up and we really appreciate you listening be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts thanks for listening let's roll
1: autobots roll out
0: Hello and welcome to The Premise. Today, Chad and I are here with Gina Simmons Schneider. She's a PhD, a fantastic author, and she has written a book called Frazzle Brain Break Free from Anxiety, Anger, and Stress Using Advanced Discoveries in Neuropsychology. And I am very excited to div- dig into the neuropsychology. Gina, welcome to The Premise. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Chad, for having me. Yeah, this is, I'm very excited to talk about this book and just neuropsychology in general. I've always been fascinated with how the brain works and this book in particular really like breaks it down in a way that's easy for readers to understand and how the brain works and how we can really take control of our anxiety or stress and live a better life.
2: And that's what I was hoping to do is to create a book that feels soothing to the reader, but mm-hmm. also offers actionable things you can do to feel better and the why uh, so that you know that it's backed by research. So why should I be doing this? Well, there's right. research that shows that it really works. And so it's got, it's got some of the neuroscience in there, but it's really accessible. And the, the goal is to just give you easy-to-do tips.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's a ton. You call them frazzle hacks in the book. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me tell our readers just a little bit about you, Gina. So a writer speaker, psychotherapist, and corporate trainer, Gina Simmons-Schneider, PhD, is co-founder of Schneider Counseling and Corporate Solutions. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist and a certified coach providing services for organizations, individuals, and families in Southern California. And in your book, you talk about real-life experiences that you have had with your clients. Obviously, you've changed their names and the situations. so we don't know who they are, but, you know, things that are like, oh, yeah. I can relate to that, like that experience, one in particular, there was a client who I think his mom was sick, he was really busy at work, there was a ton of pressure his He was having trouble with his relationship, and he really loved this woman, but couldn't spend enough time with her and he's like, you know, a big commute, how do I slow down? There's nothing I can do. I can't change my job. I can't change the fact that my wife or my mom is sick. you know, what am I going to do and you helped him realize that you cannot change those situations, but what you can change is how you treat them and how you react to them. And that was pretty eye-opening. Talk more about this idea of changing the way you think about difficult situations.
2: Yes, and that's really a good example, Jennifer, and the reason why I started with the example of Andrew is because this is common to Modern life is that we we often feel like we have to do an extreme life makeover
1: mm-hmm. yeah. before we
2: can actually feel better or right. relax or... Um, or we feel like we have to, uh, like the movie uh, that just won the Academy Award, we have to do everything everywhere all at once um, <laughs> before, you know, we have to solve every problem all the time, you know. Yeah. So, um, there's this pressure that we're feeling and, um, and these are real demands. Like Andrew had a, a job that required a lot of travel and he wanted to fall in love with this woman. He had fallen in love with a woman, but um, was worried that the travel would jeopardize the relationship. He felt like he wanted to marry her one day and then his mother had breast cancer and he, they were, the family was also going through grief and loss from the loss of his father. So, you know, when you're dealing with all of those emotional issues all at once, both positive, he made a good living, he was proud of the fact that he earned a good living, but negative, meaning that you know he was feeling pulled away from his mother who needed him, and pulled away from his girlfriend, um, and feeling like, oh my gosh, I've got to figure out a whole new career. I have to do something to be able to be available. And I think what we don't realize is that when we're under the influence of frazzle brain, and I call frazzle brain this state of of being where you feel anxious you feel a bit irritable yeah. and angry yeah. about what's going on in your life you feel pressured to get right. things done right and also some fatigue mixed in there mm-hmm. so it's it's in it and when you have all those things i call it frazzle brain you your thinking becomes very narrow and you lose your ability to think creatively mm-hmm. and so you become you have this sort of all or none Mentality. Like in Andrew's mind, it was like, I have to quit my job, <laughs> I have to start over, I have to find something else to do, you know, relocate, downsize my house. I'm just like, oh my gosh, the stresses of, of doing all of those things on top of all the stresses you currently have, that's a lot to deal with. And so we we when we are feeling frazzled, we don't think creatively because our brain is is wired to Really look at things in a binary way when we're under the influence of stress. It's like safe versus not safe. Fight or flight. Yeah. You know, yeah. How do I get to safety immediately? Mm -hmm. You know, how do I immediately um, put myself in a position where I'm no longer feeling this bad? And what that does is it really narrows our visual perception, the, the perception in our visual field, because we see less, which has been studied in labs. That when you put people under the influence of anxiety or anger, their visual field narrows right. and they literally yeah. don't see what's right in front of them. But if you can create a little bit of positive emotion, like when they show people loving, fun movies that make them feel good, their eyes will wander the screen a lot a lot in a lot broader range, which means that we take in more visual information when we feel better. So when we're stressed, our thinking becomes very binary and narrow. When we are feeling a, a little bit of joy and contentment, our, um, our thinking becomes a lot more flexible. Mm, interesting. So, so the goal of a lot of these strategies is to Look, get yourself back to the present moment and taking, taking life sort of one moment at a time and find ways to give yourself small little windows of joy and focus in on what you can do instead of being so hyper-focused on the things that you can't do. Right, right. You know, I think about
0: television and movies and, you know, eat, pray, love comes to mind. Mm
2: -hmm. There's this
0: idea that I'm going to change my life. And it makes me think about chronic pain, actually. Sometimes I suffer from Mm -hmm. chronic pain in my back. And when I'm in pain, I have this feeling of being antsy. Like I want to get up and sit in a different chair because I want to get away from the pain. If I do something different, this pain will go away, right? And so maybe we're treating our life like that. Like, if I could just change my job, I'll no longer be miserable, or if I can change whatever aspect it is, when in fact, that's not the problem. So, I love this idea that looking at, you know, reframing our perception, number one, and just literally being more positive helps us. Get through those times. We see it differently. We haven't changed the act of working too much, right? But we're mm-hmm. happier in our work. This is fascinating to me. The brain well, can adapt, right? Wait, that's that's yeah. possible.
1: We can I know, be happy right? in our work?
2: <laughs> Yes, it, it is. And that's the first thought: is Is it possible, right? That is the first radical idea: is mm. I can can I make myself, or how can I make myself feel better? If I can't change any of the major circumstances of my life, you know, Mm -hmm. I can't change my mother's cancer. I can't change the fact that I have chronic back pain. I can't change. um, So, but how can I change my emotional reaction to that and my emotional reality? And that is a radical idea, but it is actually very achievable. And We have to first conceive of the idea that I could help myself feel better. And we do know with chronic pain that being able to focus on mild contentment, curiosity, the positive emotions of like awe and wonder, like you might experience seeing a great film or a great piece of art, um, you know, that generating even just small, mild positive emotions has a curative effect in a, on our body's response to stress.
0: Yeah. You, you talk a lot about positive emotions, things like hope, the power of imagination, and you know all of these things that hopefully we're doing, but we're not, right? We, we forget about these little, very simple tools that can help our day. Let's start with hope. Talk to us about
2: the importance of hope. Hope is healthy, and if you think about hopelessness, hopelessness is one of the major symptoms of depression, which is a life-threatening illness. Depression is mm-hmm.
0: um, wow. We don't think of it like that, do we?
2: No, but it it, it is a life-threatening mental illness that is characterized by hopelessness,
1: mm-hmm.
2: feeling mm-hmm. of hopelessness and helplessness. So when we generate hope, and I offer some hope generators in the book, things you do, that, actually, yeah, yeah. Uh, that actually turn your mind a little bit toward hope. And when we do that, we are aimed in a healthier direction. And we're aimed t- towards something that we can build that will help improve our mood and our functioning in life. Mm. Um, mm. If you're feeling hopeless and helpless, you You're kind of frozen. You become sort of frozen, which is part of that, um, uh, you know, our our default mode in our brain. When we don't learn any other skills, if we're faced with something uh, threatening, we either do the fight, flight, or freeze. So sometimes a freeze response is highly functional. I I worked with a a woman who um, was pregnant. She was about eight months pregnant and uh, she and her husband had a home invasion robbery and this was a woman who's climbed mountains and had been a, an adventurer and she had a training in martial arts and she thought, saw herself as a very competent, physically capable woman, but she was eight months pregnant mm. and a man broke into their home and the husband went after him and, and had, a, had a fight with the intruder Wow. And she literally Traumatic. was paralyzed to her bed. Yeah. And she she couldn't move. And it just really rocked her sense of herself hmm. and made her feel like she was um she had failed her husband. And, and they, they got the guy arrested and her husband was okay with some minor injuries, but you know, they the family survived. And um and I explained to her that her body did exactly the right thing. What it was supposed to do. It was protecting her her she body and the to baby. She yeah. in that bed and not <laughs> move. Wow. And not make a sound. Yeah. And that was the perfect response to that threatening situation. Had she... Gotten up and tried to do something, it it might have made things much worse and mm. and harmed her and the baby, and also harmed her husband who was trying to defend them. Right? So, sure. So you know, a lot of times our body knows exactly what to do when we're in a life-threatening situation, and so we don't mess with our body's natural defense mechanisms. Mm. But if you're frozen, and the problem you're facing is. You have a boss who's mean and hasn't given you a raise in three years, and you're afraid to talk to him. Then you know you're not responding in a functional way to your life, mm. right? So, if it, it, it you know freezing in that situation, not doing anything, not speaking up for oneself, not not asking for what you need, is not functional. Yes. So that's when we need other skills so therapists and 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 self-help books can say hey here's another way you can respond and you can learn another another response besides those three that our bodies are built with
0: it's interesting when you look at it from that perspective and understand what's happening so you're in a situation you want to ask for a raise but you're afraid to ask for that raise so you stay in that frozen mode if we look at it from an outside perspective that's what's happening then we can change it because we understand it right right
1: but is is that your body just uh like evolutionarily speaking is that something that would have been advantageous but now you have to outlearn.
2: yeah exactly Yes, it's like learning that in the modern world there are other responses. We have this thing called a prefrontal cortex, which is, you know, this uh, human never part heard of, of it. our brain. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, Tell that, me I love it. <laughs> the, you know, the prefrontal cortex has all these abilities to predict. You know, our human brain can do things that animals can't. Like we we can sort of imagine scenarios and predict different outcomes. And we are a constant predicting machine, you know, and so a lot of times, what happens if someone, let's say, has anxiety and they have trouble with assertiveness, like my imaginary person who can't ask for a raise, mm-hmm. um, who's frozen? Um, you know, this person likely has anxiety, and they have um, uh, they have imagined in their mind always a worst case scenario. Like if I ask for a raise, my boss will get meaner. I'll hear no, and I'll feel like a fool, and I'll feel worse, right? So that's the, the, the scenario they're imagining with their prefrontal cortex. So Expectations, oh,
0: right? This is a, the right. expectations we create for ourselves,
2: good or exactly. bad. Right, but there's many other probable realities that one could explore if you can get out of that frozen uh, with with agitation and anxiety mindset. Mm -hmm. So, that's where the self-soothing comes in in the book, uh, Frazzle Brain, where I teach people really how to calm their nervous system way down so that you're not just responding out of um, the the animal brain or the panic, fear Mm -hmm. part of our brain, Um, but you're able to construct a, a different scenario in your mind that um and 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 then you practice and I work with people and have them, have them practice here's how you ask your boss for a raise here's how you negotiate and there are books out there on how to negotiate effectively right and these are all things we learn we're not born with them or are not born with these skills mm. so i think having that that idea which is another radical idea i may not know how to do this now but i can learn mm-hmm. That's a statement of hope, hopefulness.
0: I was, uh, I'm a rock climber. I don't know if you knew that, but.
2: I did not know that. That is really cool.
0: I overcame my extreme fear of heights and became a rock climber. (laughs) Wow. But recently I was climbing with a friend and she's pretty afraid of climbing and just all of it is, she's afraid of it, but she loves it at the same time. And she was about halfway were inside in a, in a gym Mm-hmm. and she was about halfway up on a on a climb that was a little more complex than she was used to and she get, got to a point where you know she said take which means i make her safe she's always safe she can't fall but it just feels good to have the rope tighter against her person mm-hmm. and she sits there for a minute and i can see she's really working through and hesitating and so she wants to come down and i said you know what happened there and she said well i just didn't didn't think i could grab that hold i was afraid i wouldn't make it. and i said well what would have happened if you hadn't reached it? And she kind of looked at me. I said, what would have happened? And she said, well, nothing. I said, right, because you're attached to a rope. And even if you don't make the hold, you're not actually going to fall or move. You're just going to sit there. She's mm-hmm. like, yeah, that, that's true. And I thought, well, how about next time when you're thinking I'm going to reach for that and I might not make it, instead of thinking I might not make it, just think I can try because nothing's going to happen. I'm just going to sit right here and I guess I bring it up because I was trying to help her like rethink the through her fear. Do you have any tips mm-hmm. on on how she can work through that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that one really helpful thing is to imagine your best possible self mm. in these performance situations.
0: Imagine actually getting the hold. Not I would the not opposite.
2: Imagine what is the what would happen if I don't make it?
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and the reason for that is, what are you mentally rehearsing?
0: Right. Not making it. Yeah.
2: So I had I had a client who was one of these motocross people who would go on these four inch cliff tra- trails at high speeds, and he'd have a camera mounted to his helmet. And literally, I would get nauseated just watching his videos. And he made <laughs> the most terrifying videos where. He'd really be on the edge of a, of a perilous cliff going at high speeds, and um I was like, "How do you do that because I'm looking at the the rocks that are going to knock him off the bike and throw him off the mountain and the branches that he has to duck and the you know the 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 crumbling mountain that he's riding on that could crumble underneath the tires you know and and he's saying, "I just aim." My tire where I want the bike to go. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's, and, and I,
2: <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that's a really good motto for your life. Aim, mm-hmm. aim yourself in the direction you want to go. Do you want to climb that, ro- that mountain? Do you, do you want to make this difficult climb? Then see yourself doing it with no yeah. doubt. Mm-hmm. This is how I do it. You know, this is how I get myself up there. This is how close I have to hug to the wall. You know, imagine yourself doing it. It's mm-hmm. the same thing like when as a singer um I used to sing a lot and I remember being at at the, this wedding where I had to sing this uh Celine Dion song and I had to hit this really high note and I could hit the note just fine, but if I was nervous, my throat would tighten and it would come out sounding really thin and picky. <laughs> and so my fear was obviously, I'm going to blow it at the performance, right? So what I had to imagine was my throat opening and completely having the tone come out of my mouth that yeah. I wanted to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So when you imagine your best possible self, you it requires it. some mental effort. It yeah. requires some mental effort. But what are you focusing on? You're mm-hmm. focusing on what you want to do, where you want the tire to go, where you want your body to go.
0: As a general rule, that is my motto in life. I am the kind of person who sees myself accomplishing that thing. And I, I think if I mean, I give my parents credit, but I also give my track coach credit from junior high, who was also my high school track coach. And That's great. when I, I was a runner, I was a my mile or my my race was the half mile, but I would train for long distance. And he said, Okay, and we lived in the middle of nowhere, by the way. So the bus ride would often be two, three hours long to get to the race, to the to the meets. And I would sit on the bus and I would imagine myself winning that race every time. And I would imagine the pain. I'd be like, okay, it's going to be painful. I'm going to have a hard time getting air and breathing. And I would imagine myself working through the pain and crossing the finish line first over and over and over again. And in my life, I do that. Like some people say, oh, this is never going to work. I'm never going to get this. Whereas my attitude is I'm definitely going to get this. This is definitely going to work. (laughs) And I'm not- Yeah, and I, like, I'm like i just the kind of person who's like, if the door doesn't open, um, well, hey, try picking a lock or find a different door or crawl through a window, right? Like, I don't accept closed doors.
1: Consequently, she's a bit of a hooligan.
2: Yes, that's true. <laughs>
1: I am a total
0: hooligan.
2: <laughs> no, you've got to kick the door down, Jennifer. You just kick <laughs> that sucker down.
0: <laughs> I kick doors down. I, I, I recently saw... Um, Someone sent me an email and their email signature said, if the path, if the road you were on is not difficult, you're on the wrong road. And yeah. I thought, wow, that's, I, I actually don't agree with that. Like if the road I'm on is difficult, I'm going to find a different road because I don't swim upstream. You know, I find a different way. I listen. And if things are hard, maybe I'm doing it the wrong way. Like maybe there's a better way. That's not that I'm not going to get to my destination. Oh, because I will but maybe mm-hmm. the way i'm doing it can change and you talk a lot about that in your book this idea of positive imagination and positive training we're training our brain to create new pathways
2: yes and you know i think one of the things that the that i discovered in all of this neuropsychology research i was doing that incredibly astounded me and just got me so excited i couldn't sleep at night <laughs> that's awesome is this awareness of mm. how powerful our mind really is. Yeah, yeah, and it it is really powerful. And the reason why developing a more optimistic or uh, positive mindset or growth mindset, uh, as as some of the thinkers, thought leaders like Carol Dweck are are, are talking about mindset, um, if if you develop this more growth mindset, which is the idea that I can grow to learn to do this. If I don't know how to do it now, I can learn how, which mm-hmm. is a little bit different than basic positive thinking. Like it positive is. thinking yeah. might be, I can do it, I can do it, you know? Well, maybe you can't right now. Right. It actually <laughs> you know? takes work, right. Maybe you've got to train for five years, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, or 10, or 10, mm-hmm. um, But but the idea that you can grow to become this thing that you want to become or to accomplish something is an a, an act of uh, optimism and it has physiological effects on our bodies affects our hormones affects our heart rate uh, we're less likely to have heart disease we're less likely to have stress-related illnesses I mean, there's a lot of benefits that come from cultivating an imagination that can entertain you with happier thoughts and images than cultivating an imagination that is used to torment oneself. Mm. Yeah.
1: Well, crap.
2: Yeah, Chad. You got a lot of work to do. <laughs> Mental unless flexibility. I, I thought yeah, the tormented artist... horror movies. And then, yeah, and that's and right. Then it, yeah. Sorry, I cut you off, Chad. Oh, I, was,
1: I was just saying I thought the tormented artist was a cliché for a reason.
2: <laughs> well, well, let's well, talk about that,
0: actually. That's interesting because, you know, a lot of incredible creatives, artists, have had mental health
1: uh, yeah i i do wonder if that's uh a, a load of crap i i do wonder that because <laughs> well if if you read or listen to interviews with like people who have been doing it f- regularly for mm-hmm. whatever it is whether it be music there whether are, it be yeah. art whatever it is they tend to be like i get up yeah i go to work at eight o'clock i do my work and i clock out at five nick and cave that's prime example right he goes to work Mm -hmm. writing poetry and music and then clocks out and goes to enjoy his family
0: well but i mean like the idea like you know some of my favorite favorite musicians and artists like they go through a breakup and all of a sudden they come out with this brilliant album because they're under i don't know distress what do you what do you think about this,
2: Gina? Yeah, I mean, I think that all <laughs> all humans, whether artistic or not, have all of the emotions. We experience all of the emotions. We experience the suffering, the grief, the pain, the sadness. You know, the anger, um, the envy, whatever. Right. We all experience all the human emotions. I think artists are uh, uniquely gifted in expressing emotion in art forms that. We can all resonate with, which is why I think we connect so much with art is it makes us feel those yeah, feelings for sure um, yeah. I think most artists, even if they 're like like you said, going through this horrific personal upheaval and breakup, they get joy from the creative process itself, and the same thing with writers too, you know, novelists and so forth, they go through all the emotions. The thing though that often sparks them to get up in the morning at 5 a.m. and and start writing pages um, or composing music or whatever it is they're doing is there is some joy, curiosity, uh, passion connected to the act of creation. And right, right, so even in the midst of despair, they're connecting to their joy, they're connecting to something in their life force that um, that makes them um, feel a little bit better and um, and so for a lot of people who Like for example, I think um, a lot of our our favorite artists in movies and and dancers and singers, they suffer from bipolar, which is really mania, which is huge amounts of energy, um, huge amounts of energy. And you have to have superhuman energy really to do a rock and roll tour, a world Mm. tour, (laughs) where you're traveling all day and you're you know practicing and learning songs on the road, and then you're putting you know the so much energy out on the stage, you know blood, sweat, and tears, and then you know crashing and going and doing it all over again over and over and over again. you have to have enormous amounts of energy and passion for what you're doing, and so that Life itself can be crazy and i've I've heard um my daughter's in the entertainment industry and she's she works in um casting and um she was talking about the trauma of fame, which is um is a really traumatic experience to become famous hmm. and you you know it changes the way everyone who loves you treats you <laughs> everyone who knows you treats you differently. Um, everyone people who thinks don't they know you, know yeah. you <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, who you know? You have strangers acting like they know your whole life story.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, it, it is a traumatic experience, and um, and so uh, what? A lot of people who go through that, you know, some people don't survive it, um, mm. yeah. but because they don't have the coping skills or the support system to help them survive it. But those that that do often will. We'll kind of go back to the basics of you know, let me just pick up my guitar and
0: right sit on my
2: bed and plunk out some noises here and see what i <laughs> what pleases me and do I like any of this and um and that sort of thing, so they get right back to the joy of creation, you yeah or the
0: joy yeah. of
2: expressing,
0: yeah, it brings us right back to that self soothing self soothing yeah, yes, next and, thing
1: you know, Taylor Swift has a new album out,
0: yeah, that's right, yeah, and I actually like yeah. it yeah. <laughs> 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 I did. I liked her last album. Um, some of the other self-soothing techniques, I mean, what, what comes into play, tons and tons of things. I mean, frankly, the, it's a great book. You have to, you have to read it, but we're going to go through some of them. Self-criticism versus self-compassion. So talk to us about the power of self-criticism and how that affects us and how we treat ourselves and how we... Basically, walk around in this world when we're being so critical of ourselves. I should say.
2: Yeah, that's a really good question, Jennifer. And this is something that um, that that can infect any of us at some point in time. Really, to to become exceptional at anything, we need to be self-critical, right? If we want to improve as a writer or as, uh, any anything that we want to get better at, we need to be able to be critical and say, "Oh, I." i uh, I need to be more effective in meetings because I, I never speak up, or I need to assert myself more, or I need to be a better listener uh, because I'm missing information, or I need to be more organized. So those kinds of self--critical uh, thoughts are in the service of growth, and they are usually specific, measurable. Achievable, you know, um, and we can break them down into smart goals, uh, and they're uh, and and we can we can get ourselves on a little self improvement plan, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Um, and and they usually that kind of criticism, while it might sting if we're hearing it from our boss in a performance appraisal, and our boss is saying, you know, you 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 really need to to uh, be better with this or that behavior it might sting you know to hear that criticism healthy self criticism is taking that information and going okay what's actionable about this that will help me grow right right and yeah i can feel pretty crappy about it today however you know this is good information to help me improve and help me get better at what i whatever i'm trying to accomplish when we get into toxic self-criticism, we're saying things. Well, I I suck at work. I'm I'm worthless. I, you know, my boss. I'm gonna I'm gonna get I'm gonna get fired. You know, this is the first time I didn't get above average on every every mm-hmm. one of my points at, in my job performance reviews. So therefore. This is the end. This is the end of me and my career. I'm going to lose my house. You know, my husband's going to leave me. I, you know, I'm done. So this kind of sort of self, self um, spiraling into self-loathing and um, broad, pervasive, and global self-criticism. It's not one thing that I made a mistake in. It's uh, everything about me is wrong. Right. Um, so that's when we start really getting into depression and. And um, and anxiety symptoms, and we get into hopelessness and um, self-loathing. So the remedy really for that is to kind of bring ourselves back to, to to reality and specifics, and practice self-compassion, which is something we can learn. That's another prefrontal cortex skill <laughs> that we can learn. And self-compassion is really being able to hold ourselves in our pain and acknowledge that we we felt wounded, we felt criticized. Yeah, it hurt our, hurt our feelings to be criticized. You, however, it, it's okay, you know, to, right. to be hurt, and then to recognize that all humans are going to be criticized. Everyone who we've ever known has been criticized. This is part of being. This is part of our common humanity. Right, right.
1: And only amplified with social media.
2: Totally. Oh yeah. <laughs> Woo! Yeah. Brutal. It's brutal. Yeah. And, and then, you know, so the three steps of you know of self-compassion are really acknowledging your pain, acknowledging that this is part of your your humanity and doing something to relieve that pain. Right. So that's that's getting back into the self-soothing yeah. things and treating ourselves with kindness when we hurt. Right. Like we would treat a trusted friend. You know, people treat themselves so brutally. And I ask them, I ask them on my clients, would you treat a friend that way who is sick? <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Here you are, interesting. sick
2: and beating yourself up. What, what, what would you do for a friend? All oh, chicken soup and, you know. Right.
0: Right. You know. Yeah. You have a, on page 57, you have some really good examples I'd like to read to our listeners. So an example of toxic toxic self-criticism, I am a terrible friend, which, you know, we all have that sense, like something went wrong and we just go, we go to the worst possible scenario, right? And then the right. healthy self-criticism is, I made an insensitive remark, I need to apologize. You know, like acknowledging it, what happened and what do I do to fix it? And then this other one that I really love is, I am a coward, period. And the healthy self-criticism I feel guilty about not defending my coworker in that meeting and I will next time. Like simple, right? And if we re it's a reframing really of how we assess the situation and then how we treat ourselves. And I think those are really helpful.
2: Thank you. Yes. I, I think that the 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 thing to remember is we might have that statement fly into our brain, like I'm a terrible friend. To move ourselves out of that, we need to be specific. Right,
0: yes. Yeah. You
2: know, because you are not defined, none of us are defined by any given moment in time, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? You're describing a moment in time. I insulted my friend, I said something hurtful. That's a moment. Um, Generally, when these things happen, it's not describing an entire lifetime of friendship where we've been abusive. You know, <laughs> right. typically that's not I the case. Not, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that long suffering friend has been enduring way too much, right? Um, but most of us, you know, it's it's a, a a moment in time, and we're now taking that moment in time and exaggerating it to our whole our whole self and our whole being and our whole worth. And so that's where we want to get specific and say, okay, what is the thing that I'm being criticized about, and what is specific and actionable that I can do, yeah, to to repair that or to to make things better. And as soon as we're thinking that way, we are thinking more hopefully. Right.
0: Yeah. (laughs) The default is to go to the negative, but if you catch yourself every time and reframe it, you will retrain your brain. Right.
2: Right. That's what I've understood. Still might feel. Terrible, right? You still might feel <laughs> terrible that you right, hurt your right. friend and you still might feel anxiety that you might lose a friendship over this behavior. And at the same time, you still might feel hopeful and be moving in a healthier direction if you're aimed more at um, at, at trying to repair the relationship rupture with your friend rather than beating yourself up. And, it, and it's sort of like um, George Carlin had this this routine, the comedian George Carlin, where he talked about, um, you know, driving, he's a speeder and he drives too fast. And so, what should he do if he's driving too fast and he, you know, hits a bicyclist and knocks him off the road? He says, you know, should I pull over and stop and go and talk to this person? And you know i mean they're already having a bad day and it's already in the past is there anything i can do to help them with this you know and 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 if you go up to somebody and they're laying in the road and they're and they're suffering you know they don't they don't want to have to deal with you. You know, what are you going to say? How are you feeling? Well, of course they feel bad. <laughs> they just got knocked off the road. And so, so you know, he goes on, he's, he's much funnier. <laughs> I'm not funny, obviously. But I guess the point is that um, we do not, when, when we are injured by someone else, we don't want them to be so self-absorbed that they cannot um, offer us um, some help. Yeah. So, the, the thing to do is you go and you, you offer the person help and you don't say a bunch of things like it wasn't my fault or it's all in the past now, can't you forgive me. Um, you know, you're know you actually trying to put some effort into repairing the relationship with the, or not the relationship, you're trying to show caring for the person's hurt feelings. Right. Right. Compassion. Um, As someone yeah, who's should, been on
1: the yeah. hood of a car a couple times, mm. I have never literally been run into by that person. By a passionate person.
0: <laughs> no, which has referring to is he's he rides bicycles both off road and on road. And how many times have you been hit by a car riding your bike?
1: Twice.
2: Only twice. Only <gasps> twice. Well, that's a fun, oh my god! I'm
1: an, um, an anomaly amongst my friends.
2: You are, yeah. yeah, yeah. My husband's had had that happen twice as well. I watched, yeah, I, I yeah. I watched a car hit him. Fortunately, it was in slow motion. It was terrifying. Um, mm. but I'm glad you're okay and live to tell the tale. um but yes, it, and it's interesting how the the person in the in the car often will just come out angry, and yeah it's
1: your fault. E- yeah, and even blaming the, even the people who run the stop signs,
0: yeah, it's crazy.
2: yeah they're they're they're. it's must be your fault because you know you you're in my way,
0: And I wonder. So, I wonder yeah. what that's about because like when you're driving a car, I mean, I've always figured that it's the sense of like, I'm supposed to be here, you're not. Mm-hmm. So therefore it's your fault.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I got hit by a guy who was driving on the wrong side of the road with no glasses on under the influence. And, and the first thing that he said when we got out of our vehicles was, you know, this accident wouldn't have happened if you hadn't been here.
0: <laughs> well, that's very true.
2: Oh. <laughs> that's an interesting way to look at it.
1: My car would be perfect had you not been here. So. <laughs> and
2: I'm like, yeah, it also wouldn't have happened if you weren't here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's but, funny. But uh yeah, when the police took him away in handcuffs, it was pretty um it was pretty silly. But but yeah, I do think sometimes people uh lose their compassion, which is a lose-lose situation for both the person we've harmed and the per- and, and ourselves, because the thing we've learned about compassion for ourselves and for others, compassion for others makes us feel better inside. Yeah, it is healthier for our nervous system and our bloodstream and our heart, and um, it's in the best interest of society to cultivate compassion. And so, definitely. if you do happen to find yourself, you know in a situation where you have accidentally hit someone else, be compassionate. it's actually better for you mm-hmm. <laughs> and it will also make it less likely for the you know other person to want to to harm you in, in, in some kind of situation and it, it just is all around better for society to show caring for the people we've we've harmed
0: I wanted to ask you a question directly related to something I read in your book. Do you think that people with more empathy and compassion are generally happier people?
2: I think there's evidence to support that. And the evidence is that people with better empathy and compassion have better relationships. Mm. When we have better relationships, we live longer. We survive surgeries better uh, and illnesses Mm. better. We feel a sense of social support and a sense of community which is better for our uh, body, mind, and spirit. And don't you think we're more likely
0: to join communities?
2: Yes, yes. Um, I think we are by nature, humans are social animals by nature. So, uh, we are all golden retrievers, basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, although there are some of us who, you know um, are more introverted and we still want to have a tribe. it just might be a smaller one.
0: Yeah, um,
2: <laughs> but um, we we are made to affiliate, and if we feel skilled in our ability, our capacity to affiliate with others, uh, that is correlated with a lot of positive things, Mm. uh, including better health.
0: Yeah. Well, and those things are directly related to forgiveness and kindness. And you talk a lot about forgiveness and how that affects your health, how it affects your relationships and just your happiness in general. And it's it's hard for some people to forgive themselves or others.
2: Yes, and I think, Forgiveness is somewhat complex too because I have, um, I have worked with people who are really trying and they want to be a good person and they really want to forgive, and yet they're in the same situation where they're constantly being uh, mistreated. You know, and and so you can't really, you know, you're just getting over the last offense, and, you know, your husband's out there messing around with your best friend again, you know. So (laughs) maybe moving towards forgiveness isn't, well, you might (laughs) want to be a forgiving person. Forgive,
1: but don't forget. Yeah. Well, well, that's a good point.
2: But you can't really forgive someone when you're continually being offended. Right, right. You know, because forgiveness basically implies that now we are on the other side of the injury. Hmm. I mean, so I've never forgiven
1: anyone then in my life.
2: What? What? (laughs) I'm
1: kidding.
0: No, what do you mean by that?
2: Well, well, if, if if it's a very nice thing to forgive, it's good for the person forgiving. But there, there but are we have processes. To be but there are processes. Well, there are processes of um, of reconciliation. For example, you know the reconciliation projects in in uh, South Africa. Well, part of the forgiveness was the the victimizers had to hear from the victims. Oh, I remember that. Oh. Yeah, I remember that. What they put them through.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: They had to make reparations. Yeah. Then forgiveness could happen. Right. You need to see remorse and regret. Right. Yeah. It's before not a- you can forgive. Otherwise, you're still continuing. Now you're in a continuing relationship where you're being, vic- you know, victimized by someone. And and it, it and so really biologically we need to get to safety before mm-hmm. w- we should be trying to forgive. I think we need to to because then we're not behaving in a self-compassionate way. Now we're behaving in a a, a way that's acting as if we we don't matter. So you there's know, a my, hierarchy. My really. feelings don't matter, right? Mm-hmm. if I'm saying you can continue to abuse me, and it's my job to continue to forgive you, then then we're basically saying your feelings matter more than mine, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? yeah and i and 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 therefore, I don't matter, and you're the only one that matters. so if if you're doing that, I, I don't find that healthy. Uh, and um that's more of what we would call a dependent relationship, a toxic right. relationship, an abusive relationship. So I think the the um, forgiveness doesn't require the forgiver to sacrifice all of their rights, you know, for, for safety or uh, respect or, or human, you know, decency. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting as humans, like the situations we put ourselves in and are we blaming ourselves and, you know, where, where does the change need to be made? And it's not always
2: incredibly obvious and it's difficult. And. Well, I think, I think we can start with the fundamentals, like you said, the hierarchy, if you think about The idea of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, we do have fundamental needs um, for safety, security, food, clothing, shelter. Um, Then we, you know, have some need for esteem, self esteem, Mm -hmm. you know, accomplishing Mm -hmm. some things, some need for relationship connection, uh, social, some kind of social connection. And then, you know, higher level needs like achievement and and actualizing our full human potential. So I do think that um, forgiving others doesn't mean relinquishing our own uh, needs. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We are starting to run out of time and I have a couple more topics I'd like to touch on. One of them is you talk a lot about meditation in the various different forms whether it's deep breathing or just wandering around in nature and how helpful that is to our brain chemistry and our better you know self
2: yes meditation is um has been talked about a lot and i think that um it is something i recommend to people especially anyone suffering from anxiety or Mm -hmm.
0: depression Mm -hmm. and uh, exercise too probably right
2: yeah yeah i mean the the latest studies are showing really that exercise is uh, is is more powerful than medication for treatment of depression and um I recommend just even just a little twenty minute walk every day, twenty to thirty minute walk every day is is a better cure for anxiety and depression than just about anything you could do <laughs> but yeah. um, but learning learning to train your mind to lower your nervous system arousal gives mm. you a sense of um, almost a superpower in your ability to cope. Um, and you, you, your brain develops these new pathways where you can find yourself calm in very stressful situations. And that helps clear your thinking so that you can think more flexibly and more effectively in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So, it is a really worthwhile thing to do. What I've noticed is people don't do it. They'll go, I should do it, but I'm too busy, right? Or I don't know how, or, you know, there's a lot of reasons. And so, I address some of those in the book and uh, how to start, how to begin very simply. Yeah. I think one of the easiest things to do is really try to bring your mind right down to the moment that you're in like right now like this moment right this moment (laughs) and notice how you are sitting or standing or what you're doing and what do you see around you and what are you hearing and are you tasting anything And are you feeling your clothing on your body and where are you feeling it? And are you noticing any changes in temperature between your left hand and your right hand? And are you noticing how you're breathing? Is your breathing shallow or deep or something in the middle? And What is it precisely right now? That you're observing in this moment And if you can do that, you may notice some judgmental thoughts coming in your mind, like this is boring, or I don't like the way my back feels right now, or I want to be doing something else. And so those are all thoughts of judgments, interpretations, but they're not the actual reality that we're in. Mm -hmm. They're just interpretations of the reality that we are in. Right. So... Bringing our mind back to what is actually happening instead of our inner dialogue or monologue about what is happening right now. When you do that, there's several side effects. Sometimes there's a little bit more of a feeling of lowered heart rate. Uh, You can feel like this moment is manageable because it's just a moment. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You can feel your nervous system settle down. Um, and you notice things. You will notice things that you did not notice before. Like right now, I just noticed on my bulletin board, one of the cards I have on there is crooked. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you, you will notice things that, um, that, that are right in front of you in reality. Mm. And when you're grounded in reality, you can cope better. When yeah. we are in our internal interpretations of reality, we can spin out and get frazzle brain. Mm.
0: I think you should consider doing sleep stories.
1: This has been Meditation Minute with Dr. Dean.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I don't now that I, never I like put it, everyone okay. to sleep.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> you need an app.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like Gina needs an app, no doubt. No, it's true.
2: People who are driving, wake up, wake up, wake up! (laughs) Don't drive off the (laughs) road. But there's,
0: you're, you're absolutely right. And there's a story in the book about the brand new minute that I chuckled. Such a great story about a little kid who came in and reminded you that we're in another, we're in a brand new minute. Tell, tell our listeners. I love Cody.
2: Yeah, Cody and his little brother. I just adored these kids. I worked as a youth recreation coordinator and we ran uh, summer field trips and you know year-round athletic programs for kids for after school and stuff. So Cody and his little brother were raised by a single mom on disability and they had no dad. And Cody was 12 and he was like one of my favorite kids that I I got to work with, super positive and optimistic. And um uh, one day I'm really frazzled. I'm getting everything ready for the summer beach trip. We had you know, boogie boards for the kids and snacks. And I'm racing around to try to get the bus filled up and all that. And he's, he comes up to me and he puts his right hand up in the air and he's looking down at his left wrist and he goes, 57, 58, 59. <laughs> and I look at him and he goes, it's a brand new minute. <laughs> I was just like, I just laughed. And he could always, he could always make me laugh. He was the sweetest kid. And, um, and if you're out there, Cody, I'd love to hear from you. I don't know where, what happened to him, but he was a great <laughs> kid. Um, he used to be my roller skating partner when we take kids on the roller skating uh, trips. Uh, nice. And uh, anyway, so he reminded me in that moment that it is a brand new minute right now. You can start. Anything rushing. is possible. Yeah. That's right. Right? Yeah. It, it is. It You know, when do we just notice that? Mm-hmm. Here we are right now and then the next, you know? And when we do that, when we live our life moment by moment as it's unfolding, we actually feel way more alive. Right. Yeah.
0: I recently went to a retreat, a wellness retreat. And in the beginning, mm-hmm. we were asked to set our intentions and the thing that came Forth for me was being present. My whole life, I've been all about, you know, that thing I want to achieve. I got to get to that. I'm just working for that thing, you know, and it's always in the future. No matter what you accomplish, there's always something more. Mm -hmm. And pulling back, you know, as I'm past middle age, pulling back, I'm like, what about today, right now? And being present is something I've really had to work out, but it makes a difference in how much we enjoy just those little things around us. It's, and you 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 talk about tools in your book that people can do to become present and to bring themselves into that minute to relieve stress and anxiety. And I would encourage people to really like think about that, think about being present in that moment and taking that even yeah. as you say in the book, taking one minute for deep
2: breathing can change everything exactly. And then the other piece of this, too is savoring that minute of of any kind of joy or optimism that you notice or yeah. amplifying the good in our lives. You know, we're so good with anxiety at amplifying the problems, right? They take up so much space in our working brain. When do we actually amplify the positives? You know, when do we actually just like I can amplify right now my experience with Cody. And I can bring back. It just touch, touches my heart to remember him, right, <laughs> yeah, from yeah. many, many years ago, and and I can amplify that, you know, in my mind and make it more vivid, mm. and have it take up more space in my in my mind, and that fills me up with with warmth and 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 positive feelings. And how did I do that? I just remembered something that was really enjoyable and pleasant, and and amplified that memory, and amplified it by telling you and the listeners, right? So so you can give yourself permission to amplify the good stuff, and there's physiological benefits in doing so. And we can amplify it by looking at pictures. My husband's really good at sharing fun family photos in our family text. And so he's coming up with all these old photos, and it's Again, it's amplifying the, oh, the fun time we had on our family vacation, and we're we're stretching out the positive experiences longer. And w- you can choose to do that with the painful experiences, or you can choose to do that with the positive ones. And there's different physiological right. outcomes, depending right. on what you choose.
0: Like you said, which do you want to amplify, you know? And, and do you even realize mm-hmm. you're doing it? That's the thing, is once you realize that you understand it, then you can take control of it.
2: Exactly, exactly. It's like giving yourself um, permission to choose where you want your mind to go. It's like mm-hmm. that, that guy, put you know, point your tire in the direction you want to be going. And I, I think about that a lot, that, that aiming my mind with intention is the most powerful thing I can do with my brain. Nice. I wanted to share
0: a quote that you, you share with us in your book, in part three, chapter three. The Power of Imagination. It's by Oliver Wendell Holmes. Man's mind, once stretched by a new idea, never regains its original dimensions. Mm, I love that quote. Oh, I love it so much. And I thought, gosh, isn't that true? You know, as we expand our brain and allow new ideas and thoughts and ways of acting, we change, we become different. We open our minds, we open our ability for empathy. And so thank you for sharing this book with us. And- these tools, these mental models, your Frazzle Hacks, if you will. Um, It's really a nice reminder.
2: Thank you so much Jennifer and Chad. It's great talking with you.
0: Yeah, this has been awesome. We appreciate it. I wanted to tell our listeners um, go out and buy Frazzle Brain. It's available everywhere books are sold. You can go to Gina's website frazzlebrain.com There you'll find her social handles. You can follow her on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. And of course, follow The Premise on Twitter at Pod Premise and SD Writers Fest on Instagram. You can visit us online at ThePremisePod.com. And please subscribe and rate The Premise wherever you get your podcasts. It all helps. Until next week, thank you for listening. And Gina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. All right, goodbye. Bye i just thought i'd drop things oh. <laughs> that was a great
1: Hell way, to way to end the show
0: uh. <laughs> mic drop <laughs> literally yeah thank you <laughs> that's funny